Welcome to the Keystone Church Podcast. Keystone Church is located in Keller, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Now, let's prepare our hearts for this week's message. Let me just ask a question. Raise your hand if you know what the light bright is. Have you ever heard of the light bright? Yeah, okay, we're a light bright kind of church. It's not so much a game that we play as it is a toy. And uh, I remember the light bright. It came out in the 60s. Now, I'm not... I'm not that I wasn't born then, but I do remember. It's been, it's been around this whole time, started in the 60s, and it's been so popular that in 2022 that it was actually uh, enshrined in the Toy Hall of Fame, I think is what it's called, the Toy, the Game Hall of Fame. And I didn't even know they had a Game Hall of Fame, Toy Hall of Fame, but it's pretty awesome. Now, the way it works is there's this, uh, there's this kind of thing, it's like a, panel that has light inside of it and you put a little paper in front of it and then you pierce the paper with those lights and it creates a beautiful picture. That's a light bright. And today we're going to talk about how your light can be bright. How your light must be bright. I think that if we were being honest, one of the things that we would have to contend with is the reality that our light is not always very bright. That at times, if I were to evaluate my life, I might even say, I'm not plugged in at all. I'm not plugged in at all. There's nothing emanating from my life that is bright. Well, today we're gonna take a look at it. Today we're gonna explore the reality that every single one of us must shine. Every single one of us has the ability to shine. If you are a Christ follower, you are made to radiate. You are made to shine. This is not something that you achieve. This is not something that you grow into. This is not something, if I just knew the Bible a little better, this is not something, if I had just grown up in church, then I would, no. If you are a Christ follower, hear me today, you have the ability to shine right now. This isn't something if I memorized a little more scripture or if I was a little bit, no, no, no. You have it, the latent potential for you to radiate, for you to shine, for your light to be bright. But unfortunately, if you look at the statistics, the church in America is losing its light. I was looking at the statistics in preparation of this talk and and I was even stunned at the people, the amount of people that would say today in America, I have no real religious affiliation whatsoever. Now they call this category of people that would claim I have no religious affiliation, I have no religious leaning, they call them nuns. Now not like Sister Mary, okay? but N-O-N-E, like I have none. I have no religious affiliation. What do those people look like? Who might those people be? One uh, article described them this way, who had researched it. They said if you have five, pe- five nuns, it sounds like the start of a joke, but if you have five nuns that walk into your room, two of those, one of them would be an atheist, another would be an agnostic, But then three of them, check this out, three of them would say, I just, I just don't know. I mean, I'm just not into it. 
I don't know. I'm not, I'm just not like, I don't believe in God. I think I believe in God, but I'm just not really into it. They wouldn't say I'm an atheist. They wouldn't say I'm an agnostic. They just say, eh, just kind of no needle moving at all. And so what does this look like in America right now? Well, in the 1950s, 2% of our country was, had no religious affiliation. Just 2% in the 1950s. Now we're in the 2020s, and today 20% of America says, I'm a nun. So we've gone from 2% to 20% saying, I have no religious connection, I have no religious leaning, I don't, I don't really know what I am, but I'm not this, that. I, I, I just, I have nothing. Nothing when it comes to God, nothing when it comes to religion, nothing when it comes to church. That is a startling statistic. That's a shocking statistic. There's more. You say, well, maybe it's because of the pandemic. Before the pandemic, 34% of Americans went to church pretty much every week. 34% of America went to church right before the pandemic. We're talking 2019, 20, right at the beginning of 2020. Since the pandemic, that's dropped 4%. We're at 30% right now. But in 2012, it was actually 10 points higher. So it's not the pandemic. Everybody says, oh, it's the pandemic. The pandemic changed it forever. No, actually, since 2012, it's dropped 10 percentage points. Since the pandemic, it's only dropped four percentage points. There's something else happening than a pandemic. This is not about social distancing. This is not about fear of health. This is not about during the pandemic, I got out of that, the, the, the pattern of attending church. There's something else happening in America. Here's one last statistic. I read that somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 churches shut their door every year in America right now. Given year, somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 churches are shutting their door in America every year. That's shocking. Now you may say, well, that's just, hey, that's the way it is, it's a life cycle, so there's new churches all the time. That's true, there are a lot of new churches, but not six to 10,000, not six to 10,000. So if this was a game, and it was a game for people's hearts and a game for people's souls, who's winning? If this was a war, and it was a battle between liberty or tyranny, Who's winning? And you ask the question, how did it get this way? What, what's happening from the 50s where just 2% said I have no religious connection at all to now we're at 20%? How did it do that? How since 2012 we've dropped 10 percentage points on weekly church attendance? What is going on? Well, I would take you to Matthew chapter five. Jesus told us what we need to do. In Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the title of today's message is Salt 
and shine. Salt and shine. In the Bible, first let's talk about salt. In the Bible, this salt metaphor that Jesus gives us is all over scripture. And the first way that we see salt in scripture is seasoning, like for taste. That's the way we use salt now. Job 6.6, is bland food eaten without salt? Is there flavor in an egg white? Absolutely not. (laughs) Some of y'all with your miserable egg whites. Luke chapter 14, verse 34. Now, salt is good. Can I get an amen on that? Salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Colossians 4.6. Colossians 4.6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. So the first metaphor we see in scripture is the tastiness of salt, the seasoning of salt. But there's another metaphor that you see in scripture, and it is salt as a preservative. They did not have refrigeration in those days. So without the benefit of refrigeration, they had to figure out a way to preserve their food. If you had meat, how do we make it stay fresh longer so you don't have to eat it right after you kill it? How do I get it to preserve longer? Really the question is, how do I preserve this meat from corruption? The answer is salt. They would pack it with salt. And that made salt very valuable. So when Jesus is talking about, hey, you are the salt of the world, sure, he's talking about taste, but he's also talking about a preservative. And the preservative was very valuable. This probably would have been the dominant image that they would have first thought of When you think of salt, they would have first probably thought of its preserving power and its value. Salt is so valuable that people would go to war over salt. 3,000 years ago is the oldest known war over salt. It was in China. 3,000 years ago, they went to war over salt. And then in El Paso, Texas, any West Texas peeps in the house? Okay, maybe not. In El Paso, Texas, in the 1860s, there was the El Paso Salt War. What are they fighting over? Control over these salt fields. Because they knew if I have control over that, I have control over wealth, it's power. Roman soldiers, one of the ways that they would be paid, guess how, salt. They would be paid, it would be a part of their salary, by the word, by the way, by the, way the word salary, that word sal, that word salary is constructed from how they used to talk about salt. Have you ever heard somebody talk, say, hey, that, that man's not worth his salt. Where did that come from? You ever wonder like, what does that even mean? It was because when it was said, it was in a culture where salt was a preservative. So you see these powerful images, and what does this mean for us? It means our presence as a church, as people, must stop the decay in our society. You are the salt. You must stop the decay in our culture. If they would have thought, hey, you are salt, and mine would have immediately said, so I am a preservative, that means I am to arrest the decay of my world. 
That's the first thing they probably would have thought of. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? That means that we, as a people of God, we, as the kingdom of God, must make contact with the world. That's what it means. A preservative is no good when it was in the pantry. That salt had to be applied to the meat. Only when it was applied did it have power. Same with us. Only when we make contact with the broken world does our preserving power begin to take effect. That means as Christ followers, we cannot isolate ourselves away from a lost world. We must ask ourselves, God, how can I help? God, what can I do? How can I help my neighbor? That means that we invite people to church. This is not a place for us for and no more. We are constantly praying for people that they would come and be our guests. We must make contact. We must make contact. Are we so isolated? If I were to ask you, hey, pray for some of your friends who don't know Jesus. Do you have any friends that don't know Jesus? Maybe the first step would be, God, would you, would you show me people in my life that don't know you? that I could pray for them, that I could serve them, that I could help them, that I could invite them to church, that I could tell them about the difference you've made in my life, God. Simply put, we've gotta make contact with the world. As a preservative, that also means when you make contact in the world, our job is to stop the decay in our culture. There is a decay in our culture. One of the reasons I believe that some of these statistics are true about the church in general in America is because we've lost our saltiness. We've lost our saltiness. In reading these articles and reading and preparing for this message, I read articles in the Washington Post, I read articles in the New York Times, I read articles in the Atlantic, all of them talking about people leaving the church, people leaving the church, people leaving the church. And I began to dig in and say, okay, well, why do they think people are leaving the church? What is the reason that they believe people are leaving the church? And so they, every single one of them says the same thing. Every single one of them. They say, if the church just wasn't as political as it is, then more people would be coming to the church. If the church just, if, it, if there's too political, it's too political, politics, is the reason that people are leaving the church. And, and so I began to ask another question. Well, what does that even mean? What does it mean, politics? Like, what are we really talking about? Because, I mean, what's, what's some hot buttons in politics these days, okay? Uh, is, it, is it because church people tend to believe in a limited size of government and that's why we're losing the youth of America is over an argument between a limited government or a growing government. Is that really it? A, does the church really believe that? B, is that the problem? It's not limited government. I begin to ask the question, okay, is it limited government? Is it uh, the, uh, differing views on how to solve the homeless issue? Is it different views on law and order? Is it different views on the border? Is it different views on the national debt? Is it, what are the views that are dividing people that they don't wanna come to church? And those were not the issues that were listed. It was if the church would change its stance on biblical marriage. If the church would change its stance on gender 
is male and female as God created them. If the church would change its stance that we believe every life is sacred and babies in the womb should be the, have the opportunity to breathe life. If the church would change its stand, stance on sexuality, if the church would change its stance on, on gender, if the church would change its stance on these issues, this is not about politics, my friend. This is about the word of God. The issue is the word of God. The issue is the word of God. Let me tell you when you've gone wrong politically. If your political party does not align with the word of God and you voted for them since you could vote and all of a sudden they change and they begin denying what the word of God says, let me tell you something. When the people I vote for don't agree with the word of God, let me tell you something, I don't vote for them anymore. That tells you you're not political. That tells you you're not political. When your party leaves the important truths of God, now I'm not talking about open-handed issues. Do you have more loyalty to a party or do you have loyalty to your king? That's the question. And we have to have a loyalty to the king. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's not about being political and following a party. It's about following Jesus and standing on his word. And if the word of God is offensive to people, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus said it would be. He said, listen, people are not gonna like you for loving Jesus. He said, listen, actually, it happened to me. Jesus, as he taught the word of God, it got him crucified. And a servant is no greater than his master. So we must stand on the word of God, speak it boldly, Parties come and go. Have you ever studied what they used to call themselves? Parties come and go. Politicians come and go. Positions change with the wind. We are on the word of God. And that means we courageously walk into a world that does not believe in biblical sexuality and we with love and grace teach biblical sexuality. And that means Biblical sexuality means everybody restrains. That it is a careful expression of love between a man and a woman in marriage. And everybody restrains. That means if, you, if you're in marriage and you wanna have fantasy about having intimacy with someone else, you've gotta restrain that, give it to the Lord. Everybody restrains. Everybody holds back and does it exactly as God says, because it is meant to be done that way. That means that we believe that God created two genders, male and female, he created them. That means that we believe and we advocate and we stand, why? Not because we're angry and we're mad and we hate the people who would believe differently than us. Absolutely not. We need to love strong and love loud and we believe God's word is for human flourishing. He made us, he knows us, this is the best way to live. How can we be silent? Just ask the question, how can a young generation that gets information quicker than any of us adults ever got information, if the church is not helping them understand biblical life, how will they ever know 
biblical life. How will they ever know? If just for the kids, if just for the kids to understand God's design for sex, if just for the kids, for, for, for them to understand God's design for life, then we will speak it. I actually believe it's cruel not to. Cruel not to teach, cruel not to lead, because you're withholding God's human flourishing for people. So we're making no contact. We're in the pantry on a shelf. We're not making contact with our voices. Here's what I know. We are called to stop the decay of our families. We are called to stop the decay of biblical marriage. We are, we are called to stop the decay of law and order. We're, we're to stop the decay of, of, of homelessness and mental illness. We're to stop the decay of sexualizing our children. We're to stop the decay of addiction, stop the decay of racism, stop the decay of corruption or injustice. We are the preservers of our world and it's time for the church to make contact with love and help the world. Reverse the trend of decay and death. It means also our presence must provide a taste of God's kingdom. A taste of God's kingdom. This is really cool. I, I love salt. I love salt. And I, I would put it on everything. And that's why I probably take medicine for my heart, <laughs> blood pressure. But I do love salt. And they did too. What does this mean? When he said this, he said, hey, make contact, change the world, but he's also saying, be tasty. You see, I'm convinced that many of us, whenever we make contact, we're so angry. We're so strident in our truth. We're so offended that we forget that our argument really isn't with flesh and blood, the scripture says, but it is with principalities and powers of darkness so we can compel people from a position of love, of love. Love big, love strong, and let's say it, love loud. Love loud. Let your voice of truth be strong, unbending from God's word, but let it be seasoned with grace. Let it be seasoned with humility. Let it be seasoned, even the tone you take, the smile on your face. This also means your life needs to be a taste for others, that if they were to walk with you, they would know you're Jesus. You're literally giving people a little taste of who God is. When you allow the Holy Spirit of God to move through you into the lives of others, you're sprinkling a little bit of what it looks like if they were to walk with God. Now the truth is, we're not perfect representations of God. Have you ever had somebody say, oh I don't wanna go to your church because it's just, church is full of hypocrites. I've got a word for you, you ready? They're right. This church is full of hypocrites. I mean from the front row right here all the way up to the top, hypocrites. Look to your left, look to your right, look behind you, look in front of you, hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. You wanna know why, I mean, y'all are like, dude, maybe I found the wrong church here, a bunch of hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. You know what that means? What that means is we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Stop letting perfection be the mark of how you show people Jesus. 
Stop pretending like you're perfect. Stop putting on like you're perfect. One of the most powerful things you can do is your authenticity with your imperfections rather than the audacity of the perfection you do not have. What does that mean? We are to be people who are imperfect, but we're getting better. See, that's our message. Our message is not, you have arrived to the place where there's not one hypocrite in this place. And I can prove that you're a hypocrite. Try parenting without hypocrisy. <laughs> I mean, just the topic of discipline. How many of you have like cut that discipline short? You said you never would. When you didn't have babies, you had all these ideas of how bath time was gonna go, didn't you? When you didn't have babies, you were sure that they would go to bed and you judged, you judged the mom in the grocery store where their kids are like falling out of the thing. You judged them. You gave them a look. They felt your stare. And I'm telling you, if you're a parent, hypocrisy. Now you don't wanna live there. You don't wanna give in to the brokenness. You don't wanna give in like, I'm living one life here and I'm living another life there. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is, I may not be perfect, but I know who is. I may not be perfect, but I know who is. And I'm not perfect, but I'm getting better every day. And he is perfecting something in me that the things I used to struggle with, I don't struggle with anymore. I have new ones, new mountains to conquer, but I don't struggle like I did with that. And it's only the power of God that's done that. See, we've gotta, be, we've gotta give them a little taste of that authenticity, the taste of the real, the taste of the raw. This is so important. Give them the taste of your life, but give them a taste also of the power of God. Did you know the first name for Christians? They didn't call church Christianity. Did you know that? Like as you read the Bible, as you, as you go back in the Bible, in the earliest books of the Bible, they didn't call it Christians you'll see that they called themselves the way. That was the name of their church. All the churches, the way. Hey, I need, to, I need to find a good church. Where's the way church? I need to find the way. And they would just say, we're a part of the way. That's what they'd say. So how did it change? Well, they hired a, a branding consultant and they brought him in. <laughs> no. The world looked at them like, I don't know what you're talking about with this way stuff. What I know is you're a little Jesus. You're, you keep talking about Jesus. You keep talking about Christ. You keep talking about Christ. You keep talking about his ways. You talk about what he did to the point they said, you're a little Christ. You're a Christian. And that happened quickly. You see, the early church was giving people a taste of Jesus all the time the power of God, not just the ways of God. We want wisdom. Share the wisdom God has given you with your life, but share the power of God that's changed your life. It's not enough just to share the wisdom. And isn't it interesting, right when you begin to share the power of God, it's harder. It's harder to talk about the power of God than it is to talk about the wisdom of God. It's easier to talk about what you've learned. It's harder to talk about how you've been changed. You wanna know why? For our struggle is not with flesh and blood. Our struggle is against the principalities and the powers of darkness. That's why. It's supernatural. The devil does not want you talking about the power of God. 
because it can cut through a lot of lies. When somebody experiences the power of God in their life, when someone's healed or someone's helped by the power of God, when somebody begins to hear how the power of God has changed you, how the power of God has saved your marriage, when people begin to hear how the power of God totally transformed the way that you think, when people begin to hear that, they'll put their objections to the side and lean in and listen. So the devil doesn't want them to hear. He doesn't want them to hear the wisdom either, but he definitely doesn't want anybody to hear about the difference God has made in your life. Talk about the power of God. Talk about the power of his preserving, tasty power in your life. That it's not just following the Bible, it is being empowered by God that you may follow the Bible. You cannot talk about God without talking about the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God for every single day of your life. Power for prayer, power in miracles. Then he goes forward. And in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to God, to your Father who is in heaven. We cannot be silent. This image, this lamp that is lifted high, this is another thing they dealt with, darkness, no electricity. Every room they went in, if there was not a candle burning, and they would put it up high so it would make the most impact. If there, that was not there, there was no switch, you, there was no button you could push, there was no app that you could turn it on, there's nothing you could do to get light in that spot. There were no street lights. So the lights that you would see a city on a hill, it was the lights of people in their life creating illumination so that they could have life. This illumination is powerful. It gives direction. It helps avert disaster. A lighthouse shines up high, lifted, so that ships at sea would see that light and navigate safely past the rocky areas, past the storms. Light is to guide, light is powerful. That means our influence must make the truth visible. I grew up singing the song as a little kid. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. There we go. When I was a kid, I would drive the servant leaders crazy because I would yell no as loud as I put. I would lose my mind yelling no. No! Brandon, would you please uh, go stand in the hallway? That was Sunday school. Light it under a bushel, no. I think uh, we've got parents who are living life with their light under a bushel. Have you heard of the lost generation? Right after World War I, there was a, a culture that came out of World War I that had never seen death or destruction quite like they saw in World War I. World War I unleashed machines of death and war that the world had never seen before. Trench warfare 
was the bloodiest warfare in the history of mankind. And the people that came back from war after millions had died, the people that came back from war, they were totally changed. They were not the same, and some have called them the lost generation, particularly in literature. We're talking about T.S. Eliot. We're talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald. We're talking about Ernest Hemingway. We're talking about Ezra Pounds. We're talking about Gloria, uh, can't remember. Gloria, Gertrude Stein, Gloria Stein, not the right one. Gertrude Stein. These are the artists of the lost generation. And what they did, they were, they were, they were like a ship adrift at sea with no anchor and they dove into, coming off of World War I, they dove into alcohol, and drugs and sex and suicide. The lost generation gave way to a great American awakening where the church stood up and said, we're gonna shine our light. We're, you don't have to be lost anymore. I'm convinced that we have a lost generation. We have a lost generation. And the lost generation of students and kids in our schools, they need your light to shine. They are off at sea and they need you, mom and dad, to be a lighthouse. Our families need strong men. Strong men that say, I'm gonna own my responsibility to shine the light in my home. I'm gonna shine the light in my home. I'm gonna be the one that shares the scripture over my kids. I'm gonna shine the light in my home. Our homes need men that will pray over their families. We need it. Now let's not guilt each other right now. Today's the day things change. Today's the day things change. Don't cross your arms and go, mm-hmm, that's exactly what I've been trying to tell you. No, today's the day things change. We need passionate moms. We need passionate dads. Do you talk about Jesus over dinner? Do you talk about what God has done, the, 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 the impact in your life? Do you talk about it when you're driving them to school? Do you ask them about their walk with God? Or the only time they see a needle move at all is when you get in this room? Not enough. This isn't a one-day Christianity. This is something that soaks and invades every corner of your life. How could they not know? Or do they know you attend church, but they see very little evidence of the passion that burns in your life? We need passion. Passion happens in little moments, little moments. Little moments, like I'll be laying in bed. I'll be laying in bed next to Susan. And God will tell me, lean over there and pray for her. I've shared this before. Lean over there and pray for her. Just pray for her. God will tell me that, and you know what? As a pastor, you would think I would wanna do it, right? I don't wanna do it. There's something inside of me at times, not every time, but at times where I'm looking and I'm like, ugh, I don't wanna do it. You know, like, wrong church. Why do I not wanna do it right? Where, where's that resistance? Because I know in my mind, I know in my mind this is the right thing to do. I, I love the word of God. I read the word of God every day for my own devotion and to prepare for moments like this, to exercise this gift that God has given me. 
I, I love the word of God. I'm the guy that has translated the book of James from Greek to English, and I don't wanna pray with my wife? How could that be possible? It's called spiritual warfare. And I know that when I feel that bump, don't do it. When I feel the bump, don't tell a coworker about Jesus. When you feel a bump, when you feel a bump, don't tell the person sitting next to you in the, in the airplane what you do for a living because it's gonna get really awkward. When, you, when, when you're reading the Bible on the airplane, they're looking at, what is that? And you wanna kind of shut it and not talk about it. What is that? It's called spiritual warfare. The devil doesn't want you praying for your wife. The devil doesn't want me praying for my wife. And even intellectually, I know every time I pray for her, it blesses her soul. It means something for her. It means something. And what is it that would cause me to break through and has? And this is a story I've told for many years. And honestly, I've broken through it to the point where I really don't struggle with praying for my wife. But there, if I ever feel that resistance, what is it? I recognize the devil doesn't want me praying. This is spiritual warfare, and I always pray for my wife in that moment, always. When I feel like I don't, I always do, because I know it's spiritual warfare. That's passion. Passion breaks through. I believe many of us, we're being guided by the devil in our silence, in our homes. Start talking about what you believe with them. When they're young, start talking about your worldview when you're young, start talking to them about Jesus and how he informs the decisions you make when you're young. Start talking to them about why you made a decision to vote a certain way when they're young. Tell them about that, why? Because you're informing them on a biblical worldview. You're sharing with them the power of God. Tell them, hey, if you've been stumbling with anger in your family, get the family together and say, daddy's been too angry lately and I, I just want you to know I've gone to the Lord and God's changing my life. And then commit to God changing your life. This is what it looks like for passion to invade your every single day life. There's broken areas, you're getting better. Give God the credit. I'm convinced there's a lot of growth that's happening in this room and you're just being quiet about it. You gotta share it for them to know it. Tell your wife what God is doing in your life. Tell your husband what God is sharing with you. Tell them how he's moving needles. Tell them how he's, he's taking down mountains. Tell your kids the benefit of following Jesus so that when you get in this room and you lift your hands and you sing loud, they understand you've been walking with Jesus every single day. That's what it looks like to have passion. We don't need a lost generation. We need a generation that is in passionate love with Jesus. We don't need cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity just shows up. We need biblical Christianity. We need Holy Spirit empowered Christianity. We need loving Christianity. We need strong, truthful Christianity. We need people that are gonna stand firm with love on the truth and share what God has done in their life. I gave you some pretty depressing statistics a second ago. I knew I was, a, I was gonna get to this part. Have you seen how God is moving among the lost generation? Have you seen how God is moving? Have you seen it? Did you see what happened at Auburn University when kids got together to worship God? and then spontaneously, not planned, they went to the, the closest pond and they all got baptized in the water. 100 people got baptized at Auburn University. 
just like that. In between services, someone showed me an article that talked about God moving at A&M, God moving all throughout schools all over Texas. Uh, we see it here. When I stand to speak, the other day I stood to speak to the students on Wednesday night to over 500 students that wanted to be here on Wednesday night. I'm hearing from you about how God's moving in your middle school, how God's moving in your elementary school, how God's moving. There's something happening. And I like to believe that it is the local church that refuses to be silent, that says, we're gonna tell the young generation that God is good, and we're gonna shine our light, and we're gonna make contact. Because I may not be able to change the world over there, but I can take the ground God has given me. And as for this ground, no more decay. As for this ground, no more darkness. As for this ground, we're gonna break addictions, and we're gonna heal marriages, and we're gonna see people healed, and we're gonna see people helped, and we're gonna see lids lifted. As for the ground that I take, any part of the ground you give me, God, we're gonna shine our light, we're gonna be salt, we're not gonna give in to the statistics, we're gonna break. We're gonna break the statistics. We're gonna take the ground you've given us, and I believe God's gonna give us more, do you? We're gonna take this ground that God gives us, and he says, okay, I've got a church that's willing to shine a little light. Let me give you a little more ground. Okay, we're gonna take the ground over here. I've got a church that's willing to make contact and really talk about hard stuff and really deal with some of the issues of the day and give a biblical perspective on the issues of the day. You know what? I'm gonna give you some more influence so more people can hear that. Did you think that's possible here? Not if you're quiet. Don't sit out there and say, yeah, Brandon, I'll let you do that. The church, the church, and hear me, you have it, you have it. City, sun, and on a hill cannot be hidden, cannot. That Greek word is dunatai. It means it is locked down. It cannot, it is not able. It is impossible. It's the same root of power. It's like locked with power and then hidden, that word hidden in the Greek, it, it's like the same word as a crypt. So like, it cannot be crypt, it cannot be dead, it cannot be hidden, it cannot be locked down like that. There is a power in the church that cannot be hidden, cannot be dead. You have it, share it. Let's pray. God, you're good and we love you and we need you and we believe you are the hope for the world. So God, we share that hope. We share that hope. We share that hope. God, I pray we make contact. I pray that we would stop the decay. I pray, God, that we would give a good word about you, give a good word for our church, that we begin praying right now. I'm just gonna ask, names of people that you would pray for right now that need Jesus. Names of people right now that you could serve. Somebody down the street. Names of people. Somebody that you see regularly at the grocery store. Names of people that you can serve. Names of people. Let them come to us, God. Give us names that we can invite to church. Give us names of people that we can serve well. Give us names of people that we can show them Jesus. May you be glorified, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To learn more about Keystone Church, please visit us at keystonechurch.com.